Did you know that bees lay eggs and don't have babies? We knew this too, but forgot our words. Come laugh with us, or at us, in this upcoming interview with Chris Kerouac of Bee Project Apiaries and learn some more fascinating facts about honeybees. Hey there, this is Chris, your host of the Rooted Podcast by DIY Homesteader Festival. Today we're chatting with beekeeper Chris Kerouac about the fascinating art of beekeeping and the workshop he'll be teaching at the fest this August right here on the farm. Chris loves sharing the wonder of honeybees with everyone he talks to. Along with Lindsay Nickel, he is the founder and head beekeeper of Bee Project Apiaries, which began in 2009. Education, public engagement, and sustainable beekeeping management has been their focus for the last decade. Bee Project has taken on considerable advocacy work for urban beekeeping, seeing rooftop and backyard beekeeping as a way to engage urbanites in discussions of sustainability and environmental protection. Bee Project cares about the importance of pollinators, and they love sharing the wonder of honeybees in their city. Let's talk with Chris and see what takes root. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to come and talk with us today. Lindsay mentioned the other day that things are already pretty hectic over there. Yeah, they're starting to to pick up. We've had such a cold spring, though, that uh, a lot of the hive work that we would have liked to have done already isn't done yet. Um, just because we only work the honey, the, the hives, uh, the honeybees, I was going to say, in really fair weather. So if it's too breezy okay. or too cold, uh, these things always sort of eat into our, our days. Yeah. Right. And you were out at your hives today. How did that go? Yeah, so right now the weather is really perked up and like I said, beekeeping is a real kind of fair weather sport and so um, today it was above 20 for like the first time in this summer and uh, yeah, so we were there and the hives, they're finally coming along, the wraps, which are the blankets, we blankets I guess for lack of a better term, that we insulate them with for winter have been removed and we're just going through them and uh, yeah, all the pollen's coming in now and the nectar from the willow trees so it was a nice moment to be out there uh because things finally seem to be picking up beautiful so can you start out by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to beekeeping yeah so um we came to beekeeping uh my partner and i Lindsay, uh over a decade ago actually before we were married uh we started having a hive i think season before we got married or something like that um but anyways we had taken a keen interest in small very small scale agriculture and uh diy projects and um so we were you know going up to the farm to milk cows and make you know like three cups of yogurt at a time or uh cheese or different things um and uh more like small scale food production as well so baking bread and different things and i really wanted to try sort of as i would call like a real agriculture project uh honeybees seemed neat because you didn't have to buy land in order to do it and uh, a few of my friends and i found that university of manitoba has an incredible um intro to beekeeping course that runs through the winter semester and uh three of us including myself uh took the course the first year and i found that i was completely enamored by the bees um sort of started like over the top geeking out about it and uh 
also sort of realized just like I would say most people uh, I had always really undervalued the pollination aspect of things and been focused on sort of the honey production um, but of course the course was focused around the honey production because in Manitoba that's essentially how beekeepers get paid um, so anyways uh, moving forward at the end of the season um, of the course Lindsay really encouraged me to just buy some hives or stop talking about it, I think was the quote. <laughs> uh, and so we got some hives. I think we picked up four or five the first year from a man who became a little bit of a mentor. And uh, we kept them just outside the city along the floodway um, in the first couple seasons. So yeah, that, uh, that was the initial intro into it. And then uh, we sort of very purposefully uh, built relationships with some expert beekeepers that were career beekeepers um, to bounce ideas and questions off of and uh, also perhaps especially to bounce our questions around non-conventional beekeeping off of because they really knew the conventional methods and what you might risk if you go for an organic method of dealing with something Um, and that sort of knowledge around organic beekeeping and more sustainable beekeeping practices uh, sort of took another few years for sure. And we're always still learning, but that pretty much brings us to the point when we decided to put hives in the city. So after a season, a couple seasons, we put hives in our backyard in Wolseley and that sort of got us, um, well, really focused on urban beekeeping because it was a super positive experience and not only did you not have to have a field by a field in the country um so in the normal conventional context you just kind of squat on someone's land with your hives but you still have to drive if you're an urban dweller like 45 minutes often to get to your hive um and this was just like so beautiful to have the hive right outside your backyard and uh, we got into all kinds of conversations about bees um the importance of them, uh, the importance of pollinators, and uh, the different factors that were causing the collapse in the pollinator population, um, which is where we really were finding our passion was. So this education about uh, sort of the food system and how it works and how honeybees and insect pollinators are integral to it. And so we then got um, involved in bylaw changes with the city because it was illegal what we were doing and the snowball kept growing and uh after a while we got the bylaws changes after a number of years and uh quite a few meetings and then our main focus now is urban beekeeping how is that for a monologue (laughs) wonderful and thank you for all that work you guys did on behalf of manitobans that's really amazing and inspiring Kind of jumping off of all of that, um, obviously there's a lot of hard work in there and also a lot of really special moments and good times and great learning, but it wasn't all sweet. So what kind of hurdles can you share with listeners uh, that you had to face and how you overcame them? Yeah, so the first go in this winter of 2011 to 2012, uh, we had partnered or joined forces, if you will, with the uh, Red River Beekeepers Association. So we did have a spokesperson from them and one from Bee Project talking about urban beekeeping and how it was done in other places. The the meetings seemed to go really well and the city, like, uh, 
counselors were pretty positive about it. And they left, when we left, we very much had the impression that they were going to change the bylaws. In the end, things got watered down considerably. And the change was from them being, the honeybee being classified as a banned exotic animal to becoming uh, banned, still banned, um, but agricultural animal. At the time, we actually it was very disappointing because we didn't even realize that there was a small victory within that change, uh, but we weren't aware of it. So we we were like, oh, this sucks. And I think it took a few months and then we started back up on the process um, when the next fall came about, you know, how do we how do we approach this better? And one of the things that we really found was uh, that that finding how would I describe it? Finding other stakeholders in Winnipeg that weren't necessarily beekeepers, but people who saw value in what we wanted to do, uh, saw it as an attractive activity, wanted to use their space for this, had an had a eye or a heart for sort of like sustainable food production and small, super small scale urban agriculture. Uh, we found these partners uh we partnered with fairmont hotel and manitoba hydro who provided letters saying that they felt that this activity should be allowed um, and they would give us their they were requesting us to install highs if it would be approved we also still had the red river apiaries association folks coming to the meeting as well and so although we felt like we were one of the big driving forces we really do acknowledge that these sorts of changes rely on the help of everyone and so lots of letters were wrote, written by all the different partners and uh and then we, i got to act a bit as the spokesperson for it just because i was there um and yeah so that's sort of so it was a number of years with lots of encouraging meetings after the initial change that kind of wasn't a change um so then these encouraging meetings started again and we actually found a couple of sympathetic city councillors, especially Jenny Gervasi. And I think that was a big thing that we learned as well is to try to identify who, um, who is a powerful decision maker that sees the values that you see and, and work with them uh, in the capacity you can. So I think when we left and it was finally going through, it was for just the downtown of Winnipeg. And I can remember the high that we felt that day. Like it was like, mm. It was instantly like we were floating on clouds. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's funny because it was for just a downtown and we had to do a bunch more work to uh, get citywide um, changes. But that initial sort of small victory. Yeah, it was it was pretty big. Enough to fuel you to carry on for the next stage. Hey? Yeah, I think so. And that, it, to be honest, the whole time we were adding hives to different neighborhoods um and different rooftops and stuff um around the city and and uh we're still carrying on and part of our point in being public about that was trying to demonstrate that we weren't doing anything that uh was causing any disruption to winnipeggers because we were open and, and speaking out about what we were doing and uh everyone that we encountered it was a great experience for them and for us and so that was pretty cool. And uh, and then back to that small victory initially when they changed it from a bandit exotic animal to an agricultural animal, although it's a small detail, that did allow uh, hives to be installed at educational facilities across the city without permits, um, which was actually oh, wow. that small victory, which was really cool because it allowed us to work with schools where we don't have to apply for permits. And we had we were able to install beehives at 
uh, CMU, Canadian Management University, um, U of W, uh, and a number of elementary and, and uh, secondary schools. That's really great. Can you tell listeners who are maybe urban homesteaders who are interested in keeping bees what the current regulations are for them? For sure. So now that um, the bylaws are open across Winnipeg, that means that anyone, not just bee projects, can have a hive. But there's a couple of things you do have to follow. Uh, The first one is a provincial-wide rule that a lot of small beekeepers don't really realize, but you're obligated to register with the province, with the uh, Manitoba agriculture. Um, it's for disease um, monitoring and, and protection of apiaries um, if an outbreak of something is identified. Uh, so it's sort of for the benefit of all beekeepers. So that's the first thing. It's a, your provincial beekeeping registry number. You then need that number as well as a lot of documents uh, showing that you own the property, uh, that you if you don't own the property, that you have written permission of the owner of the property to have hives. You need to have a fence. Um, there's kind of a whole list of little criteria and you apply for a development permit at the city. So you can go online and they have a beekeeping page that has all of those little, all of this, the individual criteria outlined for your application for your development slash beekeeping permit with the city. It costs like 25 to $30 right now, which is a huge step down in cost from when we started doing this, when it was almost $200 for the first few permits. Um, so it's become very accessible, but you have to show your registration number with the province. And they're now asking for proof of completion of the beekeeping course at University of Manitoba. Um, okay. So that or an equivalent course, which I guess would be up to, to their discretion, but you have to show proof that you did it. Okay. Yeah, so there are a few, but it's open to everyone as long as you follow those rules. And we do encourage, even though we haven't always done it over the years, we do encourage people registering their highs because if they do have a neighbor who's cranky about it or doesn't appreciate, doesn't appreciate why they want to keep bees in the city because there's a lot of sort of misconception about risk or danger and stuff like that or nuisance of the bees so a lot of a lot of times neighbors can misunderstand at first we really encourage talking to neighbors and explaining what you're doing and your permit allows you to do it and even if the neighbor doesn't want you to do it you can still do it without them complaining to the city and your hive being removed which will happen if you don't have a permit for sure so you just mentioned that uh bit about neighbors and a lot of myths about beekeeping so what are some of these myths that are pervasive you know in cities what are people worried about what do we have wrong um well one of the big things uh one of the biggest issues when we were talking about bylaw changes and continues to be an issue when getting a school project for example approved is um the impression of risk, angry bees or swarms of bees or killer bees that people have in their minds versus what's the real danger of bees as an insect that can sting and does sting from time to time. Um, So we always uh, have to educate people on the fact that the honeybee dies when they sting, the stinger gets ripped out of their bum and their innards come out. This is not the same as a wasp, so a yellow jacket, for example can sing as many times as it wants. Um, So honeybees are quite a bit more docile. We recommend that 
you know, you approach your hives on a sunny, warm day and that you don't open up a neighbor's hive without them. Someone that doesn't know what they're doing shouldn't be opening the hive. Um, but outside of that situation of vandalism or trespassing, the bees are very, uh, they disperse into the neighborhood very well and they're quite a bit calmer than people imagine. So that's the one thing. Um, the other thing that sometimes people have brought up, I don't even know if I should bring this up because it's a bit of a, uh, pet peeve of ours is that people sometimes question like the purity of the honey or different things like that pesticides, pesticides uh, residues or pollution and so on so we've also had to do quite a bit of education around that and that would apply more to say that people that want to do what we're doing rather than like for themselves have a hive in their backyard rather than someone who just wants to buy a, a jar of honey so obviously you want to know that your honey was not full of residues. Um, so our honey, even the stuff that's done in the city, samples get sent to CFIA for testing. Um, we've never had any issues. So for somebody who, for their family is thinking of this kind of activity, that can be a bit of an assurance. Uh, also the city does put in a buffer zone um, around every address that um, a beekeeping permit is taken out on. So that's been really helpful. I guess in terms of the practicality of backyard beekeeping, uh, what would be a common reason that people would fail or give up? And on the flip side, what do you wish you had known that might help someone who's new to beekeeping? Um, one of the big failures that people have is that usually after a season to two, um, most beginner beekeepers experience a hive death, usually through winter, sometimes in the summertime due to pests both cases it's mainly due to the life cycle of the varroa mite um so this little mite which is a big pest for beekeepers a lot of organic beekeepers or undereducated beekeepers don't know how to deal with it so the cases that we have these pests that have come in and if they're not dealt with um using either an organic management technique or a conventional technique which is essentially like pharmaceuticals um then your hive will die so that sucks and uh so we've had some people that were beekeeping for five six years and every two years their hives die and they've come and spent some time with us or gone to the red river apiaries association and learned about some of these mite management techniques some of which are organic methods that are totally certified organic and uh, work effectively once you know how to use them and that was one of those things like I wish someone had just explained that right at the beginning but I didn't even know to ask about it when I took the beekeeping course that's one of the big things the challenge with trying to be organic and understanding what you can trust on the internet um, one of our favorite resources uh, on the internet is uh, scientificbeekeeping.com I believe uh, might be a dot org i'm sorry but scientific beekeeping uh the they do a great job of presenting basically slightly less formal than a university setting uh, research that they do on their apiary and they use a lot of these organic treatments so it's been super helpful um i think that was one of your questions um it was you beat me yes. to it um and then one thing that i wish somebody had explained to me at the beginning was we took on beekeeping when we also took on having sheep, uh, chickens, um, kids. kids, and uh, <laughs> also trying, of course, to have a big garden at the same time. And we realized that 
we realize now, especially, but uh, even in the moment, we all of a sudden have this moment where we're like, man, we, we bit off way too much. Um, so we couldn't do the quality of any of the things as much as we wanted to. And because beekeeping was our kind of main thing, or that's what we were looking at to be our main thing, the other things were the things that we gave up to make sure that uh, the quality of what we were doing with the bees could stay as high as we wanted it to. Um, but that was a sad thing and a little bit discouraging, but I think a mentor who had done some of the homesteading or the, uh, small farming, a lot of them would say that to you now, you know, it's like you only have so much time in the summer and <laughs> getting every project you can dream of started in the same season, uh, is really difficult. So I think, uh, that would be one of the things. So, take on kind of one new project or if you're doing bees as a new thing, maybe don't add a bunch of other new things that same season. Um, that's what I wish that someone had told me right at the beginning. Mm, sounds like really good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning that, trying to learn that myself. Yeah, it, it's funny because like, I don't want to be preachy about it. I made the exact same mistake. So in all of your spare time that you have now that you're not raising mm-hmm. other animals, <laughs> yep. what are you guys curious about? Like what's getting you thinking and excited in the world of beekeeping? Yeah. So it's because we've been doing bees for just over a decade now, which is crazy to say, or around a decade now, um, we have gone through a couple phases where I got really excited with brewing uh, to make beer and ciders and using honey in that and then making meads. Uh, one of the things that we've <laughs> realized is that like you have to drink the stuff you make and not, and I don't mean it in the, Oh, it's not good sense. Cause actually we had some very good results with some of it. Um, the problem is more that like you're making batches and batches of this stuff. So storing all of the equipment and stuff, uh, and all of the jars for, until you drink five gallons of something is, is quite a bit. So we did that for a while. Um, that was a big, exciting thing. Um, we did, uh, some unconventional hive styles. So we ran a top bar hive for a couple of seasons for an experiment along. It's a very great educational tool. Um, and, uh, a horizontal hive, which is, uh, something that allows people who can't lift heavy loads to have the enjoyment of, of visiting hives, basically people with back problems or even with a wheelchair can roll up to the hive and it's at what would be a standing person's waist height. Um, so those were a couple of really neat things that came along over the last few years. Well, I think to this day, like the most exciting part is the human connections that we make through the bees and how the bees open doors of curiosity for other people. Um, so that's been fun. One of our biggest fails over the years with beekeeping has been um, our candle making. So that's been something that we've been working a little bit on. Um, basically hot wax is scary to work with. (laughs) (laughs) Had a couple of spills. Um, yeah, so that was a meandering thing, but there's just so many different aspects that are exciting about, um, beekeeping and that you can really dive into them and learn very deeply or superficially the different areas. And I think you can have fun doing both. Um, but because the project is our business as well, uh, it does dictate sort of which things we can put as much time as we might like into. In general, we're just as excited as we ever were about small scale and urban farming. We did gorilla maple tree tapping around the neighborhood in St. Boniface this spring and made uh, really beautiful maple syrup from two different species of maple tree. 
and we have a little incubator going trying to hatch chicks just so our kids can see them um but it came from china and it sucks so i don't think it's gonna work <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah it's terrible uh okay so yesterday was mother's day and i've been feeling pretty good about myself for bringing two kids into the world and raising four kids and you guys have two beautiful daughters and got me thinking about how many babies a queen bee lays yeah so uh a queen bee lays eggs and it's basically her only role well sorry her only job in the hive she has a couple of different roles but she will lay in summertime uh on average around 1500 eggs and the estimates go kind of between a thousand and two thousand eggs depending on who you listen to and that equals more than her body weight in eggs uh in a day sometimes so that's pretty insane wow uh, yeah, so she lays a lot. So how many of those survive and actually grow to full-sized adult bees? Uh, if you have a healthy hive, almost 100%. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So of the 1,500 that she'll lay, say, in a day, you know, like 98% should be coming to, 99% should be coming to adulthood. And how much honey does a single bee produce in its lifetime? Uh, so the estimate is approximately one tenth to one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. Another way to say that is it takes 10 to 12 honeybees their entire life to make a teaspoon of honey. Wow. It's kind of like making maple syrup, right? You really appreciate the process more when you realize oh, man. how much Do you ever? goes into it. <laughs> Yeah. I could be charged with overuse of the playful term, the bee's knees. Do bees actually have knees? Hmm. I guess they have joints in their legs, so I guess we call them knees. Good to know. I'll just continue using that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so you're coming out to the festival to teach a three-hour beekeeping 101 workshop. And what can yep. people expect to learn about? So I'm going to start by trying to scare everybody uh, by telling them how much lifting and sweating is involved in beekeeping. Um, and after I recommend to everyone to never keep more than 10 beehives, we'll get into the nitty gritty of beekeeping. So, uh, yeah, I think we're going to start by talking a bit about bee anatomy and biology sort of so just kind of how they function what they do what their role is what they eat and what they make honey from uh, because there's lots of misunderstandings um so lots of people say oh the the bees make honey from pollen for example which isn't quite the truth uh so we'll start with that sort of super basic stuff and then i think we're kind of going right. to talk about um what a beekeeper goes through in a year um and we're going to talk about uh, the basics of some diseases that everyone must know about if they're going to have a hive. Um, and then we're going to also talk about some details around honey harvesting uh, and honey yield. And one of the things that we really find, well, we usually uh, tuck it in the last little bit of a presentation, but I'm hoping to give it the time that it deserves because wintering your hives in Manitoba is extremely important uh, and the most difficult thing for most uh, beginner beekeepers. 
and even for professional beekeepers. Uh, so, um, and I'm hoping that the discussion about extracting will have some extracting the honey or harvesting the honey will have some um, hands-on component where we actually look at a few frames that are full of honey and pass them around and pass some tools around like the smoker and so on. Sounds wonderful. I really love the idea of a beekeeper's year to get a really holistic picture of the tasks that aren't just, you know, right in the summer in the thick of managing the hives, that there's <laughs> things, to, things to think about and consider throughout the whole year. Similar to a farmer, there might be a bit of a misconception that farmers have you know, fall, winter and oh, fall and winter off. Yeah. But, you know, there's still a lot of work being done behind the scenes. So it's good to educate people about those things for sure. Totally. Which festival workshop are you looking forward to? Well, so I don't really know how to build stuff. Uh, and I often look back on my like younger years as an adult and wish that like some of my friends, I had done a few years of kind of trades or carpentry before I got started on my other pursuits. I am looking forward to, uh, Francesco's discussion about natural building. That's what it's called, right? Uh, Francesco's yep. just kind of awesome. So I'm hoping to get to his. Okay. Well, and he's doing two, I guess. I Yeah, I don't even have the schedule pulled up right in front of me right now, but he's doing Natural Building 101, which is a broad overview of various types of or techniques in natural building. Mm-hmm. And then he's also doing a hempcrete workshop. Uh, that'll be a more hands-on, a hands-on active workshop to make something out of hempcrete and learn about the principles of using it effectively. And yeah, so I think one is... Will it be a pizza oven that he then cooks us an Italian pizza in? Because that would be really fun. (laughs) That would be awesome. Actually, we're hoping to build a cob oven before the festival. So it might be a workshop. It might just be... We need 10 people to come help us and yeah. the first 10 people and the first 10 people to say they want to come, we'll throw in a pot of soup and we'll all try to make a cob oven uh, because we're having sourdough workshops and just because it's such a great thing to have. It's a Absolutely. conversation starter and people just love to see them. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that, I think uh, every little homestead should have a pizza oven from everything I can tell. Mm-hmm. And okay, so you guys have been to the festival before, both you and Lindsay. And what do you look forward to about the event? Um, I think for, I like the ambiance of, you know, being outside or semi-outside, depending on if it's raining. Um, But I I like the little discussions that happen in uh, in between the workshops and stuff and sort of visits with like-minded people that share similar interests. Um, it's also like really easy to get inspired about something that you want to take on. Um, we sat through the, um, actually the presenters were great. They were super, what I would call it like a dynamic humorous presenters. They were the girls, uh, the women doing, um, like sauerkrauts and stuff. They did a, a fantastic job a little while ago and it, and that was a good example of how it makes these skills seem more accessible, maybe less intimidating. And uh, yeah, Lindsay would say attainable. For sure. Yeah, you're talking about Rita and Danielle and Rita's from Brandon, Danielle's from Winnipeg, and they are a pretty amazing duo. Uh, one of my favorite things about it is the little conversations that happen in the in-between time. So maybe while you're getting food and waiting for something or waiting between a workshop and you get into conversations about 
things that people are getting excited about um, and with really like-minded people, uh, little projects that they're hoping to take on or what they saw in a workshop. So that's always kind of fun and meeting old familiar faces. So true. Um, and we have had a lot of feedback about that in the past, uh, that it's something that's really appreciated is just meeting other like-minded folks and hearing about their journey. And so this year, we're actually, we've carved out more time for that. And so we have an hour break between the first two workshops instead of a half an hour. And then we also have a two hour long lunch break. And so we were hoping that this will give people more time for those great connections to spend time on the farm, to head mm -hmm. to the market and buy local products, and then also to nourish themselves with some good local food. We'd like to take a moment to thank our festival sponsors. The 2019 Fest is presented by Home Hardware Selkirk, where you can find much of what you'll need for your homesteading journey. For the inspiration and information to pair with those supplies, head over to New Society Publishers. Thanks also to Echo Canada, BCS America, and Noventus Credit Union. A big shout out also to the many volunteers, coordinators, and teachers who are working hard behind the scenes to make this fest the best yet. For more information on the DIY Homesteader Festival taking place August 10th and 11th at City Folk Farm in Manitoba, head to DIYFest on Instagram or homesteaderfest.ca where you can find the full workshop schedule and a link to purchase tickets. Tickets go on sale June 9th. This message was brought to you by Borscht. Just based on what I know about you and Lindsay, I know your passion goes beyond honeybees and that you love to educate about pollinators in general. On an urban scale, what can homeowners do to help our precious pollinators? I, uh, I love this question because a lot of people, uh, when they see us with our bees in different locations, they're like, well, I can't have bees. What can I, like, what can I do? And we don't want to lose people in that conversation because it's not going to be appropriate or attainable for everyone in every situation to have a hive. Um, great things that people can do to support not just the honeybee, but other uh, insect pollinators and the native or solitary bees, as well as the bumblebees, say, uh, would be to plant a diverse um, array of bee-friendly flowers. And so when we say bee-friendly, we mean flowers that aren't pre-treated with chemicals or that you're not using pesticides on during their life. So the, the times when the bees will be or the butterflies and so on might be visiting them. So the diversity is nice because there's not a specific flower that's going to solve all of the uh, problems with pollinator population. And in the countryside, uh, one thing that people can do is allow the wildflowers that grow in ditches to grow. So not mow them or burn the ditches, uh, because a lot of times in the monocultures that we have in our countryside, those flowers in the ditches are for certain periods, the only flowers blooming and therefore the only foodstuffs for both uh, managed and non-managed bee populations. Uh, and then another big one that city dwellers can do is they can really push for policy changes and practice changes with their political pressure and their purchasing power. Um, so being mindful of where your, where your fruits and vegetables uh, might be coming from. So say local producers at farmers markets that, you know, are limiting the amount of pesticides or um, 
not planting in monocultures as much. So that can be helpful because that can change practices just from the purchasing power. And also we've had some pretty major successes with urbanites getting behind the sort of save the bees campaigns and pretty major changes to uh, some of the harmful pesticides uh, have been gone through from like Health Canada. So this is a pretty major and it takes a long time, but, uh, you know, telling politicians and policymakers that you want us to find ways to have as, as sustainable and holistic of a food system as possible, very helpful. And the pesticide that I am speaking of was the changes to the neonicotinoid uh, applications and uses. Uh, so that was a, a pretty big win for the pollinators. If you're someone who really wants to help protect them, you can be excited about that. Um, and yeah, the last one is I always say, find a local beekeeper that you know that um, keeps his or her bees with the practices, uh, you know, that, that you're excited about and purchase their honey. So, Right. And if only we knew some really great local beekeepers that <laughs> could support, might have an idea of some. And we'll have more information about how you can purchase Chris and Lindsay's honey and support their projects later on. Um, if we can flip to a, a more rural lens, you did mention that rural folks can avoid mowing the ditches so that the flowers that are blooming in each pocket of the spring and summer seasons are available for the bees. Um, I'm thinking about regenerative agriculture. Um, are there flower-rich plants that you'd love to see graziers, I'm not even sure how to pronounce the word, and homesteaders add to their pastures that can provide good nectar and pollen for bees and also just be a great pasture for their cattle or other animals that they're rotating. There are a number of um, sort of hayland flowers that bees love. So all of the clovers, for example, um, alfalfa, kind of different plants that you'd find in the, just basically in the fields. Uh, these are very helpful, but one of the things that is nice is if you can find a way to incorporate or encourage some native flowers uh, and native plants and grasses is that uh, not only do they do well, um, but they're great for the unmanaged bee populations. And uh, there's a diversity with when they bloom, more so than with some of the agricultural um, specific flowers. Um, but for sure, uh, having diverse grasses in, your, in the hayland or in the pastures uh, is great for the land um, and also great for the bees. So yeah, for sure. Great, thank you. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us and for yours and Lindsay's work in educating Manitobans about beekeeping, pollinators, and policy change. It's really inspiring. Thank you so much uh, for the questions and for listening, and uh, looking forward to the festival. Thank you. We'll see you in August. Sounds great. Got a bit of a sweet tooth after hearing about all the honey? For a full listing of where you can find Bee Project Honey, visit beeproject.ca. There, you'll also find info on how you can host a hive or connect with more learning opportunities. Also, follow Chris and Lindsay on Instagram at beeprojectca.